Good morning. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1? Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament uh, or on your uh, device or scan the QR code, that'll take you there. We're going to be Ecclesiastes 1. Thanks for being here and joining us for worship this morning. Those joining us online and those in traditions and in kindred. We're worshiping different places, but the same God, the same truths, the same scripture. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got ushers right here that will get a Bible in your hand for this morning. I want to give you an update on our search for a next-gen pastor. I made an offer to Lucas Jackson, and he accepted the position. You might remember Lucas and Melissa and their three kids from Austin, Texas, were here a few weeks ago. So they accepted, and they're going to be unloading their truck this week. So they're moving to Fargo. They're super excited to come here. You're like, oh, what a change that's going to be from Austin, Texas to Fargo, North Dakota. Yes, but they're not really from Austin. They're, they're from the Midwest, so they're a little bit familiar with, with the seasons. Um, there's been a little bit of confusion with his job description, so I just want to clarify something, and that is that he will oversee Cradle through 12th grade. So Allison is our children's director, so he will work alongside of her, but also he will dive uh, more deeply into junior and senior high. That's where he'll spend the majority of his time. But he's going to look at those two areas from cradle to 12th grade and figure out how do we bring those together with kind of a, a theme of discipleship. So we're excited about that. But to welcome him, we're having a, a gift card shower. We did this for Anthony when he came too. So if you, if Lord lays it on your heart and you want to get a gift card and write a little note um, to Lucas and Melissa and their family, drop it off at the church office this week. I'll go through those gift cards, make sure he gets the right ones. Um, but we are super excited about that. We're super excited about <clears throat> he and his family being here. So, Happy New Year. Turn to the person next to you if you want to and give them a high five, say Happy New Year. If you can reach them or, or air high five or face plant, whatever you wanna do. Today we're beginning this new series called Insatiable and it's a study of the book of Ecclesiastes and I've never taught through this book and I'm super excited about it. A toddler, maybe you have one, maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you've been around them, they have this amazing imagination. They have uh, the imaginary ability to change a room that's, that's dull and boring into something exciting and fun. And after I wrote this message, I was with my grandkids last night. And this is so true. I have a three-year-old uh, grandson, and I'm not kidding you. Um, you can ask any of my family members, but it is not, like we went bowling, okay? I haven't been bowling in a year, but we went bowling. This kid does not stop. But what he does is he, he's constantly, this is what he does all the time. He never stops doing that. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what's going on in his head. I don't know what's going on in his heart, but he's having fun. And if you need to be cheered on, just get around Miles. He will cheer you on. It's so exciting because he, he, he has this ability, this imaginary ability, but they can carry on many conversations uh, with others that don't even exist. Maybe, you, maybe you've seen a toddler who's scolding somebody else and they're pointing, no, 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 and the other person's not even there, right? So they, they, they just have the ability to do that. But in an imaginary world, you can have whatever you want. People never get sick. Money's plentiful. Relationships are perfect. Purpose is clear. Pleasure is always met in an imaginary world. The word insatiable means of an appetite or desire impossible to satisfy. 
In many ways, the word describes our lives. Have you not at times found yourself standing, maybe you could think of it like this, at a, at a trailhead, ready to go down a path, unknowingly has no end. Imagine that whatever it is that you are looking for is never found. That the chase in life is just that, it's a chase. And the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to abandon the, the let's pretend life and stand face to face with reality. And as we'll learn and be reminded, life is a breath. It's, it's, a, it's a whisper spoken in the wind. In this series, we will learn much about the brevity and the elusiveness of life. Let me give you a little bit of background to this book. I think it's interesting. The book of Ecclesiastes is a part of a, a wisdom literature that we find in the Bible. And the book opens with this line. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's how it opens. So one thing we notice right away is the teacher, or in some Bibles it might say preacher, is a character in the book of Ecclesiastes who may or may not be the same as the author who is believed to be Solomon. But let's assume that the preacher or teacher and the author are the same person and that in fact is Solomon. He begins by presenting to us uh, the, the conclusion of his experiment. Now normally when somebody does an experiment, they might tell you about the experiment and then give you the conclusion. But he starts with the conclusion of his experiment, his experiment of life. He begins. Hevel. Hevel. Everything is Hevel. Our text uses the word meaningless for Hevel. But some suggest that the word meaningless falls short even in the Hebrew for the word Hevel. The word Hevel means a vapor or smoke. It is a word used 38 times as a metaphor in this book alone. It is a word used to paint a picture of, of a temporary fleeting or, or paradox. Think of it this way. When you see smoke, maybe you've been at a campfire or whatever, and the smoke is, is billowing off of the fire, and you see it, and it, it looks solid, it looks like matter, it looks like something that you could grab and hold on to, and when you reach for it, you can't grab it. It's not there. Hevel. It is to remind us that life is unpredictable, or as we will hear later, it's like a chasing after the wind. It's like reaching for smoke and you can't grab it. And right out of the blocks, the book appears to be a real Debbie Downer, honestly. Hevel, Hevel, everything is Hevel. Wow, doesn't that just get your motor running for 2023? Everything is meaningless in this life. And though it might sound like a downer, What's really happening is him trying to zero in on all the ways that we try to find meaning and purpose and value apart from God. That's his experiment throughout this whole book. Hence the title of the series, Insatiable. And the teacher starts his lesson with the topic of time, and he ends in chapter 12 on the topic of death. The two bookends of this book is, are time and death. 
And he says to us, you can spend your entire life chasing after the things that you think will bring you significance or value or purpose, but don't forget time. Because with all of the human effort and advancement, nothing really changes. For example, we can set our sight on having money, but money doesn't care who we are. You could set your, your sights on training and climbing the highest mountain, but the mountain doesn't know your name. 100 years after you die, you'll be forgotten. Time is the ultimate eraser. It will erase everything about us. Time is the great eraser and death is the great equalizer. We all have death in common. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. We're all going to die. So with the topic of time and death in mind, the teacher addresses all of the activities and, and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find this meaning that we're looking for. That could be wealth, it could be career, social status, pleasure. He addresses all of them in his experiment of life. You think your job will give you hope and meaning? What we know for sure is that it probably gives you stress and anxiety. Maybe pleasure will give us what we're looking for, but listen, the party always ends. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. What we see is that the teacher once he deconstructs all of our false hopes, points us to wisdom and the fear of the Lord. So how would he, the teacher, say we are supposed to live life knowing that everything is meaningless in this life? How are we supposed to enjoy this life? He might summarize it like this. He might say this, accept Hevel. Accept the fact that life is a vapor and acknowledge that all of life is out of our control. Throughout this book, he will point us to what he refers to as the gift of God. And what is the gift of God in this book? Enjoy the simple things of life. Things like friendship, family, good food, sunny days, Bison football games, right? Notice I didn't say Vikings Bears. <laughs> These are things that you can't control, but that you can enjoy. It requires a fearless trust in God to live in the moment and experience it and to stop living consumed with the way that you think it ought to be. The ultimate goal of the teacher is to poke you and to get you to move in the right direction of greater wisdom of life. The author finishes in chapter 12 with the answer. This is what he says at the very end of the book. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. So he's done his evaluation of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So he starts with his experiment. 
he addresses time. At the end of the book, he addresses death. And he concludes it with this, fear God and keep his commandments. Here we go. Perspective of life, verses two through 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? So he begins with a very raw and honest question. We work hard, but what do we really gain? I think that that's a really fair question. We exhaust ourselves for what? We do all of this stuff for what? The matter of gain has to do with the end of life. In other words, what will be left at the end of my life? What will be my surplus? What will I leave behind that will count? Verse four, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. So Solomon, as you know, was the wisest, we say he's the wisest man to ever live. He was a deep, deep thinker. And he begins here after asking the question, for what? By addressing the monotony of life. And as he considered life here on this earth, he compared it to the routine of generations, the sun rising and setting every single day, the wind blowing, changing directions all over the place, and all of these streams flowing into the sea which never fills up. And as he pondered all of these things, he concluded just how weary life can be on this earth. And as he thought about the patterns of nature, it led him to the cycle of life which brought about in his mind the heart and the emptiness and the lack of purpose in this life. And he's filtering all of this through the wisdom that God had given him. He attempted to answer his own question, for what? In verse four, he begins, generations come, generations go, as though to say the world is full of new births every single day and people die every single day. And yet, the world keeps on spinning and nothing ever changes. People die, and the world just keeps going. Around and around it goes. What do we leave behind? The earth that we lived on. Unchanged from when I first arrived. Now it will spin without me. The eye never has enough of seeing, and the ear is never full. What is he saying? Ultimately, everything that's under the sun brings about a life of dissatisfaction. And you know this. I know this. Because we've tried. No matter how much a person sees, they want more. No matter how much a person hears, they want to hear more. 
This, this thought, uh, and it ought to remind us of our B.C. and A.C. days of our life. The B.C. before Christ days when we, we looked to the world to find satisfaction and we found none before Christ. Prior to Christ, there is this deep longing for satisfaction and most will scratch and claw to find it in this world only to be let down and disappointed time and time and time again. Christ is the answer to our deep longing for satisfaction. Yet let's be honest and just acknowledge that there are many times that we forget that all that we are looking for is in Christ. We forget it. And so what do we do when we forget? Maybe you're a believer and we know, we know the answer in our head, right? In our heart, all that we're looking for is in Christ. But what do we do when we forget that? We go on a hunting trip back into the world, believing that what we could not find before Christ, it's still out there somewhere and it needs to be captured. And we go looking again. We're born with this innate need to be satisfied. And couple that with, with the living conditions that, that we live in, a fallen, broken, corrupt world that is plagued by sin. An unconverted heart is a magnet for a sinful world. In other words, a person who is not, a person who is not following Christ, a person who has not surrendered their life to Christ, an unconverted heart, is, is, it's like a magnet to the sinful world, just not realizing how much it will disappoint or fall short. We can run all we want, whether it's B.C. or A.C., before Christ or after Christ. We will not ever, ever, ever be satisfied outside of Christ. He is the answer to our deepest longings. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Now Solomon is declaring that a, a life apart from God, there is nothing new under the sun. I think that that's a key thing to grab a hold of. There is nothing new under the sun when we think of it in, in reference to a life apart from God. As to say, look at history, it's on repeat. It may look and feel a bit different, but there's nothing new. We think we live in this enlightened age, right? We think, oh, we're so much smarter than they used to be last generation and the generation before. Uh, let me take you on just a short trip down memory lane when it comes to mobile phones. Some of you won't know any of this, you've never even heard of this. But mobile phones have become a necessity, but the history of mobile phones is really short. In April 1973, anybody alive in 73? Yeah, a few of us. Motorola researcher Martin Cooper made the very first call from a mobile phone. It had a single little line, like you could just read the little digits up top, just one little line. Um, text, and it weighed two and a half pounds, the phone. It was nine inches tall. You could talk for about 20 minutes, and then it had to charge for 10 hours. In 1983, the phone came available for business use. Now, maybe some of you remember this. It cost over $4,000, and it had a 20-minute talk time. 
What kind of business are you doing in 20 minutes once a day, right? 20 minutes, okay? In 1992, the Nokia 1011 hit the stores for the general public. It could store up to, get this, 99 phone numbers. Then in 2007, the first generation of the iPhone hit the market, boasting three and a half inch screen and an eight hour talk time. And today there's over 150 phone manufacturers in the world. We conclude, we are so much further along and so much smarter than ever before. In his book, Living Life Backwards, David Gibson says this, the preacher's perspective is this, in reference to Ecclesiastes and Solomon, humans long to come across something in their lives that will break the constant repetitive cycle. Something to say or see or hear that will be truly new, therefore significant, but there is nothing. No such thing exists. Whatever we see and hear has already been and gone, covered by the sands of time and simply rolling around again, perhaps in a different guise, but fundamentally the same as before. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But not so fast. We like to think we're living in this enlightenment age and everything is new. And we become so impressed with self, what will we think of next? So is Solomon wrong in what he says? Verse nine, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Here's what he's saying. Here's what we need to take away. There is nothing new we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. There is nothing new and there will never be anything new under the sun that will break the cycle of dissatisfaction and then all of a sudden we're satisfied. Remember, he's evaluating life and this insatiable need to be satisfied. There is, there is nothing new, nor will there ever be anything new that will deeply satisfy us other than the one who created us. The sun is the marker of time. This side of eternity, life is a vapor, it's a breath. We, just like the world, keep doing the same things over and over again, and then we die. And then our children would do the same things over and over again, and the pattern continues. Oh, but being a Christian will change that mindset, right? No. What being a Christian should do is make us stop pretending that it isn't true. The more we are satisfied in Christ, the more we see the dissatisfaction all around us. The more we see the insatiable pursuit, the more we see the pattern that keeps repeating. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. It's a really humbling thought that we will all be forgotten. 
I mean, most of us don't know much about our great-grandparents. Maybe you've read something or heard something, maybe a little bit, but not much, because time is the eraser. None of this is meant to depress us. It's meant to invigorate us, and you're like, well, how? It sounds so depressing, right? How? Here's how. Right now matters. Not because we'll be remembered, but what we can experience in the here and now, in this moment. Don't miss it. Live present. Live intentionally for eternity. Enjoy the moments. Stop worrying about what you don't have and celebrate what you do have. Do a life reset. Make the necessary adjustments that will allow you to experience in Christ the satisfaction that you've been chasing all along. The only thing that is certain in this life is death. Life should not teach us about death. Death should teach us about how to live. Living life backward means taking the one thing in our future that we know for certain, death, and letting that inform our journey before we get there. When we resolve the absolute of death, we then learn how to live. With the end in mind, our priorities will get shuffled, our generosity will increase, you see, friends, the inevitable can be one of our greatest teachers. Secondly, the pursuits in this life, verses 12 through 18. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden that God has laid on mankind. I want you to hang on to that. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Verses 12 and 13 teach us that Solomon was intentionally famous for his wisdom. If the, if the questions of life could not be answered by the wisest man to ever live, they could not be answered. He was on a quest knowing that within every person there is this ache, this aching that never goes away. And it's still true today, and it will always be true. Explore by wisdom, he says. Man's wisdom. He's not exploring considering eternity in mind. I will find the answer, how to live and be more prosperous in this life, how to be happier. This is the wisdom of self-help. Our bookstores are filled with books. Of course there is value in everyday wisdom, teaching us how to do things better, 
more effective, more efficient, of course, but all the wisdom and all the self-help added together still don't answer the question of the meaningless of life. All wisdom that is not in light of eternity falls short and cannot answer the deeper questions of life. It only shows you how to live your meaningless life better. (laughs) Sounds like a great book title, doesn't it? Live your best meaningless life now, right? You would read the book and then have a better meaningless life. Great, congrats, exciting. Verse 13, tells us the meaningless life we live comes from God. The meaningless life we live comes from God. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have about one minute left, and I I want you to hear the last couple things. God has not only given us the sense that we lack meaning in this life, but that we can find meaning if we search for it. He has built a system where life seems meaningless without the knowledge and the understanding of a living, active God to whom we give account. I'll say it another way. How cruel, some will say, that God would do that. But actually, it's evidence of his great love and mercy toward us. God has built within us the desire and the need for that which is going to bring meaning to your life. It's not cruel, it's brilliant. You need something, God says, that only I can give you. Our hearts are restless until it finds its home in him. Here's the one thing. Life without God is insatiable. An appetite or desire impossible to satisfy. 